Good morning, Douglas. Good morning, Adi. How are you guys traveling today? Yeah, I'm traveling uh, well, thanks, Apricot. Made myself a nice big bowl of pho and some Vietnamese mint from the garden. So got a full tum and ready to go. And how are you, Douglas? Yep, good, thanks. Doing fine. Excellent. Okay, everybody. Uh, oh, I'm exhausted. <laughs> oh, you whippersnappers with your hoochie cooch and out twisting until midnight. It's no wonder you're tired. <laughs> no, no, nothing so fancy. I was simply <laughs> doing polling booth, um, polling booth calculations until about 1am or something. Oh, wow. Mm. I'm a boring person. Um, <laughs> We've so, all got our things, don't we? Don't be so harsh on yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Before we begin, um, I would just like to touch on the Pembroke uh, by-election. For those who don't know, Pembroke is a district in the upper house of Tasmania that just went to a by-election yesterday. Uh, and whilst the results aren't final, it does look like Labor has retained the seat with a 39.5% primary vote. Uh, the Liberals on 28.7% and the Greens on 187 And uh, how? what What was the, uh, the movements on those percentages? Do you happen to know? Yeah, so essentially uh, it is a bit of a loss to the Labor Party in terms of primary to the Greens, but that's mainly because the Greens didn't actually run in the last election in 2019 there. Um, so this 18.7% is up from their last time they ran in the seat, which was in 2017, where they got under 10% uh, of the vote. So generally pretty good showing there, um, although a lot of that could be explained by their federal performance in the overlapping electorate of Franklin. Yeah, well, I think we might be touching onto a couple of those things with a, a later a later topic, but that's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, another thing for you listeners out there, uh, obviously Queen Elizabeth did pass away recently, but we have made the decision that we won't be discussing that um, or really the political ramifications of that death on this week's episode. We're going to leave it a little bit. Uh, we don't really want to rehash water cooler conversation, if you will. Uh, in saying that, we might move on to our first topic, which is the UAP. The UAP that'll last for a thousand years has been voluntarily deregistered, apparently catching Victorian Senator Stephen Babbitt, the party's only representative, off guard. What do we make of this, guys? Well, let me jump in here first. I do want to hear what you've got to say, Douglas, but uh, I, a few... Uh, talking Oz polls ago, uh, made the made the prediction that I th I thought the uh, UAP was going to get stronger and stronger. So let me say very clearly, I was wrong. Uh, the UAP obviously hasn't got stronger and stronger. That doesn't mean that Clive is down or out. But just for the uh, the record, if I make a prediction, I get it wrong. I'd like to ad admit to it. Uh, there, there was something interesting about this. Uh, Though there was a September, um, 9th September article in SBS News entitled UAP No More, Clive Palmer Deregisters United Australia Party, but Senator May Continue Using Name by Charles Cheng. Uh, and it was interesting because of these comments by our friend of the uh, subreddit, Kevin Bonham, uh, an opinion poll expert. 
Uh, Kevin Bonham pointed out Mr. Palmer, who is leader of the UAP, made a similar move in the past and acknowledged there could be some, in quotes, procedural burdens linked to having a registered party he may be choosing to avoid. In 2017, the former uh, Palmer United Party was deregistered and then re-emerged as the United Australia Party in 2000. But Mr Bonham said the Palmer United Party did not have any members of parliament at this stage, uh, at that stage, so the situa previous situation was a bit different. So I think there's a little rider in there that uh, it's too soon to uh, write off Palmer, too soon to write off how he may reincarnate himself and and what uh, the next stage of his political ambitions are. Uh, I just thought it was interesting that uh, you've got someone as esteemed as Ken and Kevin Bonham implying that Palmer is not yet down and out. Mm, I'd say that's fair, but <clears throat> it's actually I'm really glad that you brought up the Palmer United Party in a sense. Because the party may actually have trouble re-registering for the next federal election. Um, because it is technically won't be the continuation of the United Australia Party, and that name will have been taken as legislation where you can't have a party name essentially be that of a deregistered party. Um, so that's partly, I think, why they changed from Palmer's United Party to the United Australia Party uh, in that sense. So... I don't know if I'll be able to re-register. And you've got Senator Stephen Babbitt claiming that, oh, no, 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 it's still around. I'm still like the senator for it. Craig Kelly's still the federal parliamentary leader, despite I'm pretty sure going back to his furniture shop. Don't worry about it. This is all good. And I knew about this for months. That earlier thing where I said, like, what? I had no idea about this. I, I, that was just a... I've been really busy uh, because of the Queen died. He, he lit... <laughs> yeah, it did really seem like that. Um, look, if I'm honest, I, I did expect the UAP to kind of go kaput at some point. Um, I don't know if I expected it so soon after the election. I, I expected mm. them to kind of continue on and use Babette as a bit of a mouthpiece for a while. But then again, maybe they can do that without actually having all that, you know, uh, all that horrible things like party financial disclosures and whatnot to deal with. Uh, maybe. Maybe. What do you reckon, Douglas? Yeah, well, I think the the administration of it is the, the party. I mean, it's so weird. Apparently, I read somewhere that, like, Clive Palmer transferred control of the party to some bloke. I forget his name, Michael something. But um, it's just... And Craig Kelly's still in charge, apparently. I haven't seen much of him, but I, to be fair, I don't have Telegram. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, I think I think they'll be back. I think they'll be back next time. But I think really, twenty twenty two will have been their best performance because they had the whole anti Dan Andrews anti lockdown vote, and I don't think that's going to be a major issue in twenty twenty five or whenever the next election is. But you know, I'm sure that some Clive Palmer version will be around with $100 million in the bank and a death tax to fight. So, good on him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I'm yet to, yet to write him, uh, write him off. Yeah, you know, pe people like, uh, people like Clive don't, uh, don't give up easily, and they don't let go readily. No. 
I usually don't. Yeah, we had just a couple of comments. There was uh, one from Sofa King Mad who um, has said, unlucky Clive with some uh, laughing emojis. I'm going to tick them as probably not a UAP fan. Uh, the other one is uh, from Petite Reddit. Maybe it's Petite Reddit. Uh, UAP was used as a tax dodge. Am I right or wrong? I don't think that is the, the case. Uh I'm not quite sure how you would use it as a, a tax, tax dodge. Uh, is there a way, Apricot? The only thing that I can kind of think about a way of using it as a tax dodge would really be in terms of, A, artificially lowering your donation, sorry, uh, using donations to your own party to lower your um, income tax, uh, you know, using it as deductibles, also oh, yeah. party assets. But I believe there's legislation where a party's assets, when they are deregistered, must be sold off. Like, you can't buy something as a political party that you start and then claim it on tax and then just be like, oh, well, now the party's deregistered, I guess I'll just keep this car. Um, yeah. Yeah, look, that, make, that makes sense. Mm. Um, uh, and yeah, we have, I know we're just about to move on, but also uh, Ben Along has said, uh, hopefully One Nation folds as, as well. So uh, probably not inundated with uh, with fans for the UAP here, but... <laughs> no, but I do want to actually take Ben Along's point about the One Nation, about One Nation and hoping that they fold. I don't think they will at the moment, at least not until Pauline Hansen goes. Um, I do want to say that it's interesting that I, I believe of the last news poll, One Nation is actually polling at a record high of 7%, um, which, you know, for a minor party, once you start to get over 5%, 7%, getting closer to the 10% mark, um, you probably should start paying more attention to them. The my kind of working theory at the moment is it's just that the liberal primary has become so like depressed after the election that voters are kind of scattering and that's how like one nation has gotten its bump uh it'll be interesting mm. to see if they can maintain that uh, that's interesting yeah well, well i suppose stay tuned there we go uh, so, yeah, sorry if i might just go back to one nation oh, i think one nation has more of a purpose than uh, the UAP, you know, One Nation's got its sort of anti-immigration uh, sort of more conservative than the Liberal Party base there for them, uh, whereas the United Australia Party is sort of unclear what they stand for beyond lockdowns, which we haven't had for a while. So They stand for freedom, Douglas. Oh, of course. Of course, the freedom. <laughs> In fact, that's not that's not true. That's fake news. They stand for freedom, freedom, freedom. Huh. Oh, thank you, thank you. Mm. Oh dear. Well, we might look at moving on to our second uh, topic, yep. uh, which I'll let Douglas take the lead on, as it's question time. Douglas. Yes. Yeah, so, question time. Uh, people might watch it. I don't, I'm not sure how many people watch Question Time, but uh, there's some problems, well, I view there being some problems with it. And so I might start off with some mathematics. So recently, Monique Ryan, the member for Kuyong, pointed out the need the need to utilise the time that Parliament sits uh, well, as it's quite expensive. And so I wondered, you know, how expensive is this time, right? 
And so I'll spare you the specific mathematics, but the cost of paying MPs wages uh, to meet at Parliament House, so that's not including any allowances they may have, and it's not including parliamentary staff, yeah. in question time, which goes for around an hour, 70 minutes, uh, that's about $50,000. And per question, because there's about 20 questions in a question time generally, you're getting about $2,300 a question. Uh, and so, I mean, you really have to think, like, what is the use of some of some of question time? Some of it's quite useful, uh, other parts not so much. So, look, the, uh, Bob Catter, great man, in a recent debate in Parliament, he said, he pretty much explained the problem with question time at the moment, and I won't uh, denigrate the importance of his point by trying to do his voice so i'll just quote him quote one side <laughs> go one on side give it quote. a little go <laughs> no I, I won't i won't <laughs> um one side throws banana skins in front of the government and the government tells us how wonderful they are which bores the entire entire australian public silly and i think you know that's just hitting the nail on the head there that's the entire problem with question time so the problems, right? Well, I might just expand on the problem he's pointed out. So government questions, in my view, are mostly useless. They're used to briefly touch on their policies before almost always descending into an attack on those opposite, that is, the opposition. Uh, and I think while there's an argument for using question time to create awareness of government policies, there are less expensive avenues to do this. You know, you could do an advertising campaign, press release or something like that. Um, and then you've got the opposition's questions, which, in my view, are better than the government's, but not by much. So the idea of the opposition holding the government to account is important. Uh, for example, you've got the recent issue of Christy McBain and Mark Dreyfus's potential breaches of the Ministerial Code of Conduct. However, the opposition asking the same question three times in three different ways uh, isn't very helpful. Um, and then another fairly large problem my view is the yep. speaker milton dick uh i feel in my view he's sort of uh like the labor version of the last speaker he's not specifically partisan like bronwyn bishop was but he sort of just leans towards the the labor side of the view so whenever there's a point of order on relevance he'll pretty much always side with the Labour person speaking, or you know, gently guide them to return to the question. Right. Um, so, those are the real main problems that I see. And so, here are my proposed solutions in increasing order of extremity. So, <laughs> okay. Uh, and the, I wouldn't mind asking you just a couple of questions after you finish this too. So, yeah. oh well, if you want to, yeah, cut in now. Cut in now. No, 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 I'd like to. I'd like to hear your solutions. You might answer okay. my questions. All right, all right. So my first one would be just to reform question time. So the number one most important thing, I think Tony Burke's done uh, a lot of good things with the standing orders and reforming them uh, from the last government. But one of the big things is, in my opinion, removing the Dorothy Dix questions because mm. the government isn't actually meant to be asking questions of itself. It's supposed to be held to account during question time. And it just uses that as sort of advertising space, uh, in my opinion. But keeping that in mind, the questions being asked should be tough but important. So 
nothing like the one asked by Susan Lay recently, where she asked why a unionist was at the Jobs and Skills Summit. I admit <laughs> that I have no idea how you would implement, let alone interpret these ideas in the standing orders. Okay, so that's the first uh, suggestion or solution. And right. so here we go. Uh, this is the more second and more extreme solution. So it's stop, it's stop broadcasting question time. So if people are interested, they can read Hansard online. And with less focus or perceived focus on question time, it should, in theory, bring about a more productive question time as repeating policy statements into the void would, would soon lose its appeal. But then there's the problem of uh, it makes it harder for the general public to view their elected officials and, you know, see what they're up to. Mm. Uh, and then the third and most extreme option is to uh, stop question time altogether. As in the beginnings of federal parliament, questions without notice were able to be raised at any point during a sitting rather than at a time specified in the standing orders. And this had let questions be more productive but again, it would limit the public's ability to view proceedings relatively digestibly because these questions would, you know, appear at any point in a debate. So, and that's my solution. So go ahead, RD. Uh, well, look, actually, I'm, I'm just going to get you to clarify something there at the, the end. You you said at the, uh, the early days of our parliament that our question time wasn't as formalised as it is now. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, well, I well that's interesting. I I, I didn't know that it had been formalised like that. I think that uh, I, I happen to like that idea. I think that there's constantly cameras in the uh, the, the chambers in Parliament. Uh, if questions were being asked without notice, I find it extremely difficult to believe that somebody couldn't be paid to stitch those camera uh, cameras stitch those questions together the video of those video of those questions together and present them to the public i don't think that it needs to be uh i don't think it needs to be done uh, you know formalized into a neat little bundle that can be uh, be sent off to the media I think you could have questions. I think you're suggesting that having questions without notice could still work in the modern in the modern day. So that was that was interesting. I didn't I didn't know that bit, and I think it still could be done. I think uh, that's what do you think? That's a good idea. I think that's a good idea. But uh, I would just say that you know Parliament can't even stream itself in HD online, so you have to look at it in standard definition. So I think you might be oh. you know, overestimating their technological ability. Well, look, I mean, look, maybe. Go on. I was going to say, I mean, like, what's the average age of the electric politician? 50 now? Like, maybe not having a lot of uh, technological foresight, shall we say? Hmm. Oh. I find it very hard to believe that if you just didn't open source or like source out the stream and say, here's all the footage from Parliament, uh, send it out fire hose in the same way that Twitter does. I find it almost impossible to believe that there wouldn't be several dozen people who would put together the appropriate uh, questions from that that clip. We see, we see it with other video feeds. We see it with other uh, mediums online. I, I think that could be done. Mm -hmm. Uh, look, one of the questions I had was, I was surprised it costs so little. Now, 50,000 Ks is, you know, a huge amount of money. 
But in terms of the government, anything with a, a K on the end rather than an M or a B or a T, uh, unfortunately, gets classified as, as cheap. I actually didn't think that was that expensive. You you did. Well, that's that's leaving out uh, a lot of things. So that's leaving out uh, – that's based off of the base member salary, so that's leaving out any ministerial salaries or shadow ministerial salaries. Uh, as I said, that's leaving out allowances, that's leaving out uh, um, staff, parliamentary staff that work in there, uh, that's leaving out the cost of actually running Parliament House, uh, such right. as, uh, you know, keeping the lights on and things like that. Um, so it's probably a bit more than that. But, you know, per question, to, I, but I, I think that's, I mean, yeah, I think you're right. When you're dealing in millions and billions, 2,000 isn't that much. but it does add up when you've got, you know, 60, I think it's yep, 60 sitting days in a year or so, oh, maybe a bit more. Well, look, that's right. It, it, it does add up. I wasn't, wasn't meaning to treat it uh, tritely, but it's, it's interesting seeing numbers like that. Um, uh, yeah. The question, the questions them, themselves, I'm, I'm not sure how you would, um, essentially police the, the the quality of it it's it's something that frustrates me whenever i decide i'm going to watch a, a bit of it as you said the dorothy dixes the government essentially using it as um own advertising what would be your opinion on question time is only open to uh the opposition the non yeah and uh the other people who aren't actually members of the government well that's. I just don't know how you would sort of justify it, like saying, "Oh, the opposition and the crossbench get questions, but the government doesn't," because uh, their questions are sort of they are pointless, but they do serve a purpose that they shouldn't. They shouldn't be in question time, but they do have a purpose for you know spruiking their agenda, and yeah i'm just not not really sure how you, how you would remove the government from question time in the current question time format with the structured question time so no i think don't think the you really could. No. do you no. think reforming the uh the role of the speaker into uh a adversarial is not the not the correct term but into a much uh, stricter position of determining whether or not a question has been answered rather than just fobbed off. And I suppose a side question of that, uh, do you think a politician is the right person for the speaker in the first place? Um, I think a politician, I think it should be someone from the House. I think that's a good idea. But I think, you know... Like I'd, I'd want it to be an independent, but if you have an independent speaker, that constituency loses their voice, which where you have a party member as a speaker, they've still got the rest of the party to support their values, especially when it's the government, because they can still uh, pass whatever they want, if it's a majority anyway. May I make a suggestion? Hmm. Uh, I don't. I don't want to dive too much into it because we said we wouldn't. But uh, say hypothetically, we ended up being a republic. What about the idea of a hypothetical, like Chancellor of Australia or President of Australia, basically taking on the speaker duties? 
that way and like as like maybe a directly elected head of state essentially kind of being that arbiter there well um, that would depend on what their responsibilities would be because i mean i'm not really sure what the governor general does at the moment um uh, i believe they uh, do real estate ads oh yes and (laughs) grants for leadership Uh, anyway um let's leave aside that uh i mean it's an it's an idea but i I honestly think the you know original parliament where you had important questions asked that were asked to get information from the government or to hold the government to account rather than to you know ask gotcha questions or just to talk about themselves. I think that was a much better solution. And I think we've gone wrong with the current question time format. I think that's more in keeping of the, the, the model, which whilst it's not much of a reality, it is how I prefer to view government in that they are our employees. And if you were in charge of a business and walked into um, your employers and asked them the question, and they didn't give you an answer to the question when they were required to. If they were your employees, you'd be warning them and then then sacking them. Uh, I think the same principle applies to uh, to, to government. I, you know, we've we've been conned into thinking they're our leaders. They're not. They're our employees. And if an employee can't perform the duties that you've employed them to do, then they don't deserve to be paid, and they don't deserve to stay in that position. I would very much favour a, a much harder line from someone in the speaker or the speaker position and possibly an increase in their powers to uh, take further action against ministers who refuse to answer uh, valid taxpayer questions, uh, voter questions. To be fair, if we start applying like uh, performance metrics and things to politicians, we would never have anyone elected, I think. <laughs> well, look, that's poss- that's that's possible that's possibly true. I'm not sure where the middle ground is, but uh, I feel like we've been uh, conned and tap 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 just too far to the other side to uh, look at them as if they're the they're the the leaders who can't be questioned. When in actual uh, fact, they are our employees. I I think anyway. <laughs> oh, good. Um, look, my personal thoughts on Question Time are I really I don't watch it. I make a conscious decision not to watch it these days, mainly because I value my mental health a lot more than I used to. Um, <laughs> but no, it is really it is really tiring just to see those Dorothy Dixes. And there was a little bit, of, I did have a little bit of hope that they would get rid of those uh, with the new government. You know, they kind of were talking a big talk about, oh, you know, like Question Time's been an absolute farce the last decade. Uh, it really needs to be modernised. And then they, and like, they, yeah, they didn't make some changes to the standing orders. Um, I don't think they really went far enough. And it's just a bit disappointing. It's a bit shit, really. Yeah. This is doing government differently. <laughs> uh, well, d- just a couple of comments raised uh, by by this, and uh, we'll, we'll finish off with you, uh, Douglas, after this. 
because you might have a couple more questions from uh, Aussie Mozzie, who's tuned in again. The issue is that parties in Australia are much more disciplined. In the UK, you can occasionally see a government MP ask a difficult question when there's debate around a controversial issue. Uh, and Ben along on the, uh, you would possibly brought up the, we had talked about the topic of the Republic. A lot of political parties put forward the idea of a Republic, but none have put forward a model that would improve the standard of living. I don't think most people really care what system of government we live under, so long as it doesn't adversely affect the way we live. And I have a feeling in a couple of weeks, uh, the Republic might be a topic we're discussing more. But uh, did you want to finish off with uh, anything uh, more on the question time, Douglas? I, well, all I'd want to say is that, you know, as as Monique Ryan said, these Dorothy Dixes, you could be spending that time, that very important time, uh, debating bills, having divisions and passing legislation rather than, you know, seeing there talking about yourself. So, Yep. Yeah, I agree. Right, Yeah. Um, so we might just move on because there was a bit of news, uh, last week, which was that Labor's climate legislation has officially passed the Senate. Hooray. <laughs> I don't really, I don't really want to, um, rehash those conversations about, you know, the target and stuff. Um, but I thought it was really worth mentioning and maybe getting a couple of your thoughts on it. What do you guys think? Far away, Douglas. All right. Well, I don't see that issue coming up again. <laughs> um, Climate change is a policy issue solved forever. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, here I did. I might do one voice for you. So, I think the <laughs> I think I think that Grange political party did the right thing by passing this. Um, but I wonder whether they would have been better off waiting for Labor to fall into minority in 2025 or to push their case before them. In my view, it's, the, it's in their interest to make these gains by cooperation rather than conflict. Uh, this will help them appear more moderate and appeal to more Labor voters and increase their representation. And another way they could do this is by disendorsing Lydia Thorpe. But, you know. <laughs> you take their spicy tank. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to... What you, either One or either of you might be able to tell me this because I, I don't know the answer to it. What's the first measurable target? You know, what's the what's the first uh, milestone that we can can judge the start to judge the success of this legislation? Well, from what I'm aware of the actual legislation, it's a little bit too vague to actually, and that was really kind of one of the criticisms of it. Um, <laughs> so it's got that it's got that forty three percent target by. I, is it 2030, that target? 43% by then, I think? Or is it... Yeah, I no, thought, is thought it was 2030, 2035. Oh, whichever one it was, you're saying that's the first the first uh, real stake in the ground that we can see whether it's making a difference. Yeah, you know, I, so the government is now assured it will secure legislation to assign its 43% 2030 emissions target. So maybe by uh, 2028, if we're still only, like, if we're nowhere near 40%, then we should probably um, be a little bit critical. But again, it really is just kind of legislation to, like, do something for this government at the moment. Then I 
I don't think they're really thinking about the actual long-term future of it. Um, but yeah, maybe should the ALP get elected for a second term, um, they'll suddenly be like, oh, crap, that's right. We've actually got to do something. Let's go. But uh, maybe. I'm not so sure. Yeah, that's that's long enough. That's long enough to be essentially meaningless, isn't it? A bit, yeah. It's a, again, it's a bit shit, isn't it? Look, it it, it is, and look, I I, I suppose that, yeah, Douglas joked about it, but uh, really, we can say, okay, tick, we're we're done. Put our, uh, I, I I know what what color do you what color ribbon do you put on your jacket now for, to say I've you know supported climate change. I don't I don't know what it is, but you know we can do that. We can tick it off, and we can say, okay, we've we've done our bit and moved on move on to the next bit of meaningless legislation. I think that's actually a really good point and what I'm really worried that this government will devolve into. Tick, we've done climate change legislation. Tick, we've done Indigenous rights with the referendum. Tick, we've mm. done employability with the job summit. Look at this, we've, we've done so much and yet everyone's still struggling. Yep, everyone's still struggling and the rule measures that matter are just the same as what they were you know, before they were in power. Uh, and, you know, the same same argument applies to the... Uh, you know the the coalition in there. We've had yeah you know, just as much vacuous legislation and promises from them as well. Uh, I <laughs> think if we had uh, now, I, you might you might be able to tell me this given your uh, relationship with with knowing knowing more about the the Greens. Did the Greens have any uh, more defined set of targets? Uh, I believe so. Let me. We had we had this whole fancy policy document that like outlined um, the like main target by twenty thirty, and then like it had like check in stages as well, and it had you know where exactly where we're going to uh, build new like renewable energies and things. It was actually oh, it was a really detailed document, and I was quite proud of it. Uh, I'll see well, see that sounds that later. sounds meaningful to me. Yeah, you know, if you've if you've got something that you can. Uh, be criticised for not meeting, but also hold up to show that you actually are on on track. That's mm-hmm. something real. So I'm, look, I, I'm I'm not surprised to yeah. hear that's that's come from that's come from them, particularly on an issue like this. Yeah, I remember reading. So the ABC just before the election, I believe, put out an article where they asked a bunch of scientists about you know the three major parties and their climate policies. And the overwhelming sense was that liberals, garbage policy, not really going to do much, whatever. Um, ALP, it's something. It's a bit vague, um, but it's something. When Whereas the Greens had kind of the opposite problem, according to the scientists, where they're like, they're overambitious. It's well-defined. But it's quite and it's quite an ambitious that probably won't have the political support needed. Yeah, right. Um, if I may, um, yes. The the thing with Labor is, I think they're governing like they're still in opposition. They're still so scared of you know, oh, what if we do something and that upsets people. You know, sometimes you've just got to, you know, expend a bit of political capital and take an action. Um, 
you know, and whether they'll decide to take the right action is another matter entirely. But um, I think when Labor was in opposition, they were pretty much a centre-right party because they refused to, you know, fight any of the legislation the LNP or the Liberal National Coalition put up, like the uh, Religious Discrimination Bill, which they sought to uh, pass in the House uh, rather than, you know, block or even try to amend in the House. Uh, oh, they, sorry, they did try to amend it, but not their own amendments. Um, and then you had, oh, well, the one that really sticks with me is the Identify and Disrupt Act, which was um, pretty much gave away a lot of our rights on the internet. Mm. But um, I just think, you know, they've got to start controlling the narrative and start saying, you know, we're going to do this. And if you don't like it, well, too bad. You know, we're, we're in the honeymoon period. Let's do something with it. Mm. Well, let's get, what's your, let's, let's have a little, little bit of a, a, a round of a speculation here. Uh, what would be your, what percentage chance do you think there is that the, the targets will be met by, by 2030? I'm, I'm going to give it probably eight to 12% and I'm feeling a bit generous there. What do you two give it? Under this current government and its current like approach, I don't give it much chance, but the only thing that kind of, it's it's a bit difficult because I'll, the state governments are actually doing a decent amount of work. And so the federal government will kind of be able to ride on those coattails a significant amount. Um, there's also the issue of creative accounting um, when you like account for like land sequestration, whatnot. Um, but another thing that's kind of known about humans, uh, the very fallible things that they are, is when we start to get towards a deadline, we often like ramp up and go like, oh crap, okay, okay. Mm. Um, so yeah, under the current kind of approach from the government, I don't give it a high chance. But who knows? They may come 2028, suddenly realise that, oh, no, that's right. Albo, who's now retired, promised that. We should probably really do that. Oh, no. Oh, maybe. What do you Fine, they'll the be back in opposition are? by then. Yeah, yeah probably. <laughs> and then it'll What's... be Peter Dutton's problem. Oh, no. Oh, well, God. Oh God, let's not let's not go <laughs> the horror let's not go the into horror. the darkest timeline yeah well no it won't be peter dutton's problem for long because you know peter dutton will start a war with china and then we'll be a satellite state so <laughs> what, what, what chances do you put on it douglas um look i'm not a you know climate i'm not really uh knowledgeable in that area but i was under the impression that the the target was sort of going to happen anyway because of how much work the states were doing. So I'm pretty, right. I felt like the uh, federal government was just going to ride out on that. I couldn't tell you uh, about, you know, numbers and statistics, but that's how I felt. That's what I felt was going to happen. Oh, fair enough. We had a, we've got a comment from another one of the listeners here, uh, Gray Warden 133. At least we are moving somewhere with climate change policies. Not going to be fun when the sea level rises for Sydney siders. LOL. Just kidding. Please don't kill me. 
Um, and <laughs> <laughs> uh, I suppose this is an inside baseball comment on your snoovatar, Douglas. How do, does Douglas purposefully look like Conor McGregor? So that's from uh, that's from Big Dick Fuckboy sixty nine. So there you go. You got a you got a, you got a shout out there, Big Dick. Conor McGregor. Yeah, I th- it took me a moment, but when I had to look at the uh, the, the snoover tower with the, the the glasses and beard and that, I thought, ah, oh, maybe. Mm, yeah. <laughs> As I said, that's a little bit inside baseball for the people listening here on uh, Reddit Talk. So sorry about that on the uh, the, the podcast when it, it it comes out. That might not make much sense. That one. Oh, dear. We might look at moving into our final topic for today, guys, uh, which is a Guardian Essential poll that was put out, uh, basically about uh, the New South Wales election, which is next year. Which spoiler alert: we might be running a campaign check-in for the new south wales election we'll see how that goes stay tuned um but apparently 64 percent of young voters are considering voting for an independent in the new south wales election um which i think is really interesting and it really kind of pushes this idea that we're in like the era of independence you know after the teals in 2022 Mm. but a I, i think it's quite an overinflated number because there won't be that many independents. Like, you know, not everyone will be able to vote for an independent. Um, there's also the quality of independents. I feel like a lot of people these days go, independent, that means you're like Monique Ryan or Zali Stegall, right? Um, when really there's, there's quite a high chance that they'll probably just be a bit shit. Um, but it could it could drastically alter the New South Wales electoral scape. What do we think? Well, look, uh, I, yeah, I I feel like we're I, I feel like we're seeing a pattern that burst into life with the the federal election this year. Um, it was you know, approaching Trumpian in its significance, and though neither Morrison or Albo hold a candle to the great man. The clear signal from the Australian people is that they've had a gutful of the two majors and are looking for radical change. We've discussed this now in a couple of um, op- when we've made a few observations about the the changes in the 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 results. In fact, you started off this morning with that one where you said that uh, Labor had lost. In, did you say it was Pembroke down in uh, Tassie? Pembroke, and no, they didn't lose it; they retained it. No, no, sorry that they that they lost some of their their lead, like their actual uh, percentage that they normally hold it by was eroded. And mm-hmm. you, you said that oh, I'm correct on that, aren't I? Yes. That yes. You would, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So, um, it was my understanding that they'd well, they may have lost primary vote, but they'd gained a lead against the Liberals in their two party preferred. Yes. They have. Yes. Yes, but what we're what uh, the point I was making is that we're seeing a reduction in the popularity of the uh, the coalition Liberal and and Labor, and I thought it was interesting that uh, there was that uh, where was it in the Guardian article which you're you're probably referring to that ninth September sixty four percent of young voters by uh, Benita Kolovos, there was a point that made that stuck out to me the executive director of essential media peter lewis 
said the result reflects a shift away from the major parties, particularly by Gen Z and millennials, who together outnumber baby boomers on the electoral roll for the first time. I thought that was a really a really interesting point that we're seeing this shift federally, potentially going to see at the state level, and you know, it's not surprising because generations come up, but that we're starting to see a different desire for leadership from Gen Z and uh, millennials. I think this is possibly the start of a, a significant trend that we're going to see over the next 20 years. Mm, quite possibly, yes. What about you, Douglas? How do you see it? Uh, what? How do you see the impact of that in New South Wales and in voting generally? Look, I, I don't, I don't uh, see see it the same way as you, Ardita. I think, um, I think we'll have more clarity after the uh, federal election study comes out. But uh, these these young people that they've polled, they may say that they're considering voting for an independent, but the fact remains that two-thirds of young people either vote for the Greens or Labor. And another thing about the independence is Morrison's no longer in charge, and that was a big part of their appeal because he was just so uh, toxic to the Liberal brand. And I think Teal's, you know, Teal candidates, the so-called Teal candidates as a result, have lost a lot of their political mileage, in my opinion. And you combine this with, uh, in Victoria, for example, we had the Teal 4 Caulfield in the upcoming Victorian election, who was a Labor member a week before she signed up as a Teal. So you've got to sort of start questioning uh, how Teal these Teals are, in my opinion. Mm. And I do personally really dislike that independent running in Caulfield uh, because it does really give credence to that. Oh, they're not actually uh, independents, which was like a, a line that was, you know, said a lot during the federal election. Um, and, you know, maybe you, people could have given some pass for being a Labor member, but not only was she a Labor member, she'd run for internal like office bearer positions and things like that. She was quite clearly actively involved. So an electorate officer for Mark Dreyfus. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> uh, well, look, I suppose we're going to be watching going to be watching that as as well. Just had a couple of uh, a, a couple of comments. One I think must have been on the previous one from I'm presuming it's going to be pronounced uh, mouse juice. Wow, surprised it actually fell apart. Uh, and then we have 420 grams of butter on this that 64 percent is incredibly promising even if it comes in below that i think that the last federal election was the first time that our country finally grasped how our preferential voting system worked and how uh, oh God. yeah so I'll, I'll finish off but that's a great point uh finally grasped how our preferential voting system worked and how powerful a tool it can be major parties having a third primary vote was uh French kiss in uh, asterisks. Having more independence and minor parties in Parliament is, in my opinion, only something that can improve our democracy. I think as the new generations continue to come up, this trend will only continue. Yeah, that caught I 420 grams of butter. Uh, I think that I think is a particularly good point. The preferential voting system 
Now, this is possibly confirmation bias. It's possibly, uh, uh, you know, just how I see it, just how I see it. I feel like that is getting more understood and people are no longer being sold the idea that a vote for an independent or a minor party is a wasted vote because now I think the education is at the point that uh, people do have a much better grasp of the preferential voting system. I think that's I think that's an incredibly important point. What, what do you two think? Yeah, I I would basically concur with that. Um, I, I will say that over the last decade, a really fundamental uh, point of how the Greens have been approaching elections is to try and really hammer home that, like, no, don't worry, you can actually vote for third parties and things like that. It doesn't even need to be for us. You you don't need to plumb for one of the majors. Hmm. So, I agree that. Um, Go on, Douglas. Uh, um, I would just say that you know, uh, traditionally with um, older Australians, you've got sort of party loyalties. You know, um, for example, my my grandmother's always telling me about her car, and she always says to me, "Oh, this has to last me till I die." And I think a lot of people vote like that. You know, oh, right. I'll just stick with that. You know, because that's served me well in the past. But I think with younger people, it's not like that. And I think party loyalty uh, is, isn't really a thing as much rather than, you know, voting for uh, your values. And, you know, you're willing to change that depending on mm. performance. Yeah, I think there's a lot of there's there's a reasonable amount of choice in values too. For example, if you're particularly concerned about climate, uh, there was there's many parties offering that as part of their their platform. I think think too. Yeah, you know, I mean, quite obviously, I'm not a I'm not a young person, uh, but I had noticed uh, with my working career that it used to be that there was a certain loyalty you would have to the company you worked to worked for because they would be showing loyalty to you. Whereas the situation for uh, sorry, the situation I saw it rapidly becoming with me, but particularly with now, there is none of that loyalty. There is none of that, uh, that long-term investing will invest in you as a, an employee. You invested in us as a, an employer or, you know, we'll invest in you as a banking customer and you invest in us in a, as, as a bank. There's a whole lot of uh, the older style uh, loyalty-based models that have fallen apart. I think it's probably no surprise that Gen Z and millennials are thinking, well, why would I blindly vote for a party that hasn't shown me any real uh, respect and seems to be just trying to farm my vote rather than build something long-term? I'm, I'm not really surprised to, to see that shift. Hmm. You no, don't agree? I think, no, no, I, I, I agree. I agree, I think. Um, yeah, I just don't have much more to say really about that besides that I'm really I'm really interested to see what the future holds. Hmm. I'm sure we'll be discussing it. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> uh, on There's that no, note... No more comments. No more comments from the... Uh, from the the people tuning tuning in so uh yeah i didn't have anything more to add on that either what about you Douglas? um 
Well, if we're about to wrap up, then perhaps we could pad the way to 11 by talking about the recent uh, comments by Tim Smith and Matthew Guy. Uh, well, about Matthew Guy. He's been talking about how he sort of set him up. I did actually see that. Yeah, that was quite interesting. Um, I don't know if you've seen them, Ardeet, but essentially Smith has uh, done an interview where he's like, um, back when Matthew Guy was saying that I should resign from Parliament after I crashed my Jaguar into a Hawthorne family's home, um, he was actually telling me that I could stay on in Parliament, but he was telling the public that he wanted me gone. Um, and then later he offered me a seat in the upper house, but, you know, to, to try and avoid a by-election and I've like turned him down. So, so, so it was, it was, he's just be revealing some behind the scenes shenanigans. Yeah, basically. Uh, but it's probably something that Matthew, no, Matthew O'Brien, God, <laughs> <laughs> um, that Matt, Matthew Guy probably doesn't need right now. No, no. Look, I, I had, I had seen it uh, fleetingly. I was, you know, more concentrating on uh, the the topics that we we had today. Can you flesh it out a little bit more, Douglas? Um, no, I think Apricot's, you know, covered all the bases there. Really, um, I just think, um, I well, I don't think it really matters. I don't think this was, the, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back to stop Matthew Guy from becoming the next premier of Victoria. But I think, I think you know, there's obviously still a lot of disunity within the Victorian Liberal Party, and you know, y- you can imagine there would be. Um, but yeah, I just think Tim Smith is a bit of a, a bit of a dolt, I'd say. You know, between that and um, what was the uh, pledging his loyalty to the new king? That was a bit servile. Mm. We may also just touch on a new Guardian Essential poll for the Vic State election that's come out, uh, which in terms of primaries have the AFP on 40%, the Coalition on 36.5%, the Greens on 11.6%, Independents on 92 and Other on 2.7%. Estimated two-party preferred is 556 to the ALP. Oh, I unless I'm misunderstanding something, I would have. I'm I'm a bit surprised that those numbers aren't more more generous for for Labor. Same here. Are we are we going to see a narrowing of the polls? I don't know. So, so do you think it's that uh, as as things get closer, the the polls get sort of tweaked a bit more? But I. Well, okay. Well, you're, I, you're one of the people who understands this, um, th- these sorts of figures. So, if you're seeing it that way, that's interesting. No, I would have thought that the um, coalition would probably be low thirties, like maybe thirty-two mm. or something. Uh, I am a little bit surprised at thirty-six. Yeah, yeah. And what what did you say the Greens were? Eleven point six, which I also think is actually a bit low for Greens in Victoria. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. We've got some certainly got some interesting times coming up with uh, with with uh, Victoria and New South Wales. Uh, we're not going to be running mm-hmm. out of things to talk about in any time soon. And no, Victoria's no. lucky dip upper house. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Alrighty then. Uh, we might look at ending today's episode there. Thank yep. you all for being with us. It's been fantastic. Uh, and yeah, see you next week. Thanks, Apricot. Thanks, Douglas. Yep. See you later. Thanks, guys. Bye.